0: Hey everyone, Laszla Montgomery here with another China History Podcast. As I mentioned last time at the conclusion of the John Service four-part series, Barry up in Beijing gave me the brainy idea to keep things going and explore what happened in China after Jack Service went back to the U.S. to go face a very hostile Washington crowd. So today in this episode, we are going to look at the Chinese Civil War and all the Various events that went down between the time Japan surrendered in August of 1945, up to the moment Mao Zedong had his great historic moment on October 1st, 1949. This period, as devastating as it was, was another incredible and dramatic slice of Chinese history. It's been 18 centuries since the Battle of Red Cliffs during the Three Kingdoms period, and we're still talking about it. Well, 18 centuries from now, in the year 3813, I'm sure history buffs will still remember the revolution that brought the CCP to power in China in 1949, and the dynasty is still going strong. Today, in this episode one of the series, we'll go up to the end of the ill-fated Marshall mission in January 1947, and then in part two, we'll pick up at the point where all niceties and efforts to behave in front of the USA are pushed aside and the KMT and CCP go at it full bore. Not everyone in China was happy about the outcome of the Civil War. Many who fled China when the PRC was established, and no small amount of Americans back then, have agonized for decades about how this whole Civil War turned out. How could the nationalist government and the KMT possibly lose out against the communists when they had superiority from almost every conceivable angle. If only Jiang had been able to rise to the occasion, if only the KMT operatives were as smooth as the CCP activists and cadres, if only the nationalists hadn't been so corrupt, self-serving, and heavy-handed in their ways, if only the NRA military had been led by better officers, if only the soldiers had been better trained and better fed, better treated and more disciplined, If only, if only, if only. Well, this lugubrious mantra has been obsessed over for more than six decades. All of us armchair quarterbacks, young and old, can sit here in the comfort and convenience of the present and look back on everything that happened between 1912 and 1949. And just like the superhero, Captain Hindsight, on South Park, we can point to a thousand missed opportunities and mistakes committed by the nationalist government when they were in power on the mainland. It was impossible to tell back then what the consequences of everyone's combined actions would be. From the time of Song Chia-ren's assassination in 1913 till the CCP's moment came in October 1949, historians have considered a multitude of what-ifs that might have offered the Chinese people a better outcome and experience than what ultimately ended up in the historical record. The Chinese Civil War, the part that began right after Japan surrendered, was Jiang's to lose. The communists had almost nothing on him. This was David fighting Goliath to some degree. Let's first just zoom out a moment and look at the big picture that led everyone to that whole dynamic that existed in August 1945. Well, it sort of went like this. The Qing dynasty fell in 1911. And just like it happens almost every time on the China History Podcast, a dynasty falls and then there's a period with nobody in charge and there's suffering galore amongst the masses until things get sorted out. With no Qin Shi Huang types waiting in the wings to fill the shoes of the Manchus, regional warlords rushed into the power vacuum and seized control of the whole northern and central parts of China. Sun Yat-sen's budding KMT really only had a power base south of the Yangtze River. While things are getting painfully sorted out, World War I happens, then the Treaty of Versailles, and another kick in the ass to China. And this whole concatenation of events ultimately leads to one of the most defining moments in modern Chinese history, the May 4th Movement. And from the passions and anger forged in the May 4th Movement, Coupled with the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, the Communist Party of China is born in Shanghai two years later in 1921. So, the Allied powers who put together the whole Treaty of Versailles and who later lamented the day Mao Zedong came to power should have thought about the consequences of their actions. If not for screwing China and the Treaty of Versailles, there wouldn't have been a May 4th movement. And no May 4th? then perhaps no CCP. And once those communists start to organize and make their presence known, that's really where the Civil War begins. Jiang Kai-shek had spent some time in Moscow in the early 20s, and among the several things he came back to China with was a lasting hatred and loathing of communism. The CCP, in the early days, allowed the Comintern to call the shots. 1924, with little insistence from Stalin, a united front was formed where the CCP joins together with the Nationalist Army to rid China of these troublesome warlords. Ah, the good old days. By 1927, mission accomplished. Warlords are all, for the most part, all out of business. And then in April of that year, the defining moment that would forever keep the KMT and CCP in a state of endless bloody rivalry... Shanghai Massacre goes down. In this act, Jiang showed his hand to all leftists, not just the CCP. From this point forward, despite many attempts from the Soviets and the Americans to mediate, this oil was never going to be able to mix with that vinegar. Well, after April 1927, the communists scatter, and Jiang will spend the next two decades trying to rub them out. Oh, they'll keep joining hands and declaring their unity, but after the Shanghai Massacre in 1927 and the white terror that followed, the Civil War was on. The whole matter of Japan's later invasion and the whole World War II thing were merely inconveniences and delays that got in the way of the Civil War waiting to be fought. The communists used the Japanese invasion as the perfect excuse to slowly build up their popular support in the countryside. The basic plan was get any and all peasants all pumped up about the virtues and benefits of the communists and point out all the lousy things about the nationalists, which wasn't the hardest thing in the world to do in those days. Then, after Japan was done in and the Civil War began in earnest, they'd already have this huge base of support in all the empty spaces in between the big cities. China back then wasn't like today, where a good half of the populace lives in the urban areas. In Civil War China, 90% of the people bedded down every night in the countryside. Everyone of the communist or leftist persuasion who managed not to get whacked during the White Terror fled in all directions. Mao and his followers set up a Soviet at Jinggangshan on the border of Hunan and Jiangxi provinces, and Jiang wasted no time trying to finish off the extermination job except he can't so he finally gives it his all and on his fifth attempt dislodges them from their Jinggangshan base and he chases them all the way up to Yan'an in Shanxi province where Mao after this long march has established himself as capo de capo of the CCP then in December 1936 after pounding the Chai for years and almost bringing them to the brink of extinction Jiang goes and gets himself kidnapped in Xi'an. A way out is negotiated where Jiang escapes with his life, but at the price of losing all his momentum in his mission to eradicate the nation of any and all communists and their sympathizers. The CCP uses this gift from the gods to finally get their moment to step out onto the world stage, where they obtain a nice degree of legitimacy from being so magnanimous as to spare their hated rival's life. Actually, they just allowed themselves to be talked into handing Jiang over by Stalin. After the Xi'an incident of 1936, Jiang is stuck pretending to enthusiastically join together with Mao to bite the Japanese. No Academy Award for Jiang Kai-shek for his performance, but he does persuade the Americans that he's totally in bed with Mao as far as the main mission goes, defeating Japan. Well, we all know from the last four episodes what went down in China with the Dixie Mission, Patrick Hurley, FDR, all his cronies, the uh, China hands, the China lobby, and anyone else who had a finger in that pie. After something as horrible as the Shanghai Massacre, not to mention the New Fourth Army incident that went down in January 1941, which I haven't said much, if anything, about yet, the Americans and the Russians, too, both should have known there was going to be No way to reconcile these two parties. So, no love lost between these rivals. From the start, Mao and Jiang were equally intent on being the last man standing when it was all over. All this BS about joining together and forming a nice unified democratic two-party state was never going to happen. Once Japan went down in defeat, both sides knew what had to be done. As I said, by the end of the long march in 1935... Mao had pretty much established himself as the main guy in the Chinese Communist Party. The way things were in the CCP world, it wasn't so easy to challenge Mao. The way the whole democratic centralism thing worked. Once he took control, the whole system was sort of self-sustaining. Mao didn't have that many challenges to his authority. Jiang, on the other hand, He did not enjoy the wide-sweeping powers, loyalties, and authority that Mao did. In fact, one of the many things that contributed to Jiang's ultimate defeat was that he had to cut so many deals with everyone all the time to get what he wanted, his generals included. He couldn't just bark out orders like Mao could. He was rarely, if ever, in full control. Mao concentrated his forces only in the north, Jiang was spread out too widely across central and northern China. Never once was he in complete control of his forces or his destiny. In any revolution, it's a given you have to have bodies to fight against the opposing side. Political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. <inaudible> Mao said that back in November 1938, and truer words were never spoken. Despite Chiang Kai-shek's best efforts to wipe the Red Army off the face of China, they kept on growing. And these survivors of Chiang's attempts at annihilation kept coming back stronger and smarter. Chiang, on the other hand, he relied on the worst of worst possible methods to build an army. He used conscripts. Conscripts. These were, for the most part, dirt-poor, subsistence farmers who knew how to plant wheat and soybeans all right, but didn't really have the ability or desire to shoot a rifle at their fellow Chinese in a bloody and heated battle. So they totally did not want to be there. And these farmers, these nongmin, these guys whose lives were savagely uprooted from their already miserable existence and forced to march with thousands of strangers in the harshest conditions these nobodies from the sticks who all face the choice to join up or else. The International Red Cross estimated that between the Japanese invasion in 1937 to final victory in 1949, about 15 million of these poor souls perished. They perished from the entire wall-to-wall smorgasbord of the usual suspects that have decimated armies since time immemorial, battle, every manner of physical abuse from ignorant and sadistic officers, starvation from lack of food, was maybe the biggest killer. Didn't Napoleon say it so well when he declared that an army moves on its stomach? Jiang's generals, I guess, never heard that one. Well, I guess we can't blame the generalissimo personally for this. This was just part of a greater problem, that Jiang relied on military leaders and officers who were more concerned with profiteering at the soldiers' expense than actually taking the fight to the Red Army. He couldn't get them to follow orders. Too many did what they wanted to do, which was avoid military confrontations with the Red Army and make money while they had the authority and the wherewithal. The National Revolutionary Army, at about the time of Japan's defeat, had around three million of these troops I just described. Now, Not all of them were as pitiful as I explained. You had plenty of leftover soldiers from the warlord armies and some patriots who chose to be there to fight for the Republic of China. The Red Army had maybe 900,000 to a million soldiers. About 200,000 of these soldiers were the remnants of the Manchukuo army that kept a lid on things in that Japanese puppet state. After it was all over, plenty of Japanese soldiers who didn't get repatriated ended up working for the Coms too, and fought with them against the NRA. The NRA employed these Japanese, too. And North Koreans, too, fought on the side of the Red Army up in Manchuria. Those guys go way back. Now, as anyone who has studied PRC history knows, sometimes it's hard to separate the facts from the myths. How many of the sacred communist myths are true is anyone's guess. But one thing was for sure. They had a much better fighting force, and morale was a lot higher. This narrative about the Chinese Civil War, trust me, comes in multiple flavors. For example, the CCP liberated many villages and brought immediate benefits and hope to some. But often it was more a case of the CCP booting out the nationalists and just stepping in their shoes. And this didn't necessarily mean anything good to the inhabitants of that liberated area. They'll say they liberated them. The KMT will say they enslaved them, probably somewhere in between. But my point is, this has always been a divisive issue, and there's not one single definitive version that everyone agrees on, you know, as far as the Civil War. One thing's for sure. With all these village takeovers, wherever and whenever, one of the first things the communists would do is a little good old-fashioned land reform. That was maybe a jingoistic term to describe the act of allowing the poorest peasants to blow off steam, turn on their landlord betters, shed blood for the revolution, and in this act, tie themselves irrevocably to the side of the Chinese communists. Between the chamber of horrors that occasionally took place in carrying out land reform and the brutality of the NRA whenever they passed through your town, those Lao Bai Xing visited by the two opposing sides, suffered either way. It happened in many cases where the communists came into a village, carried out land reform, and after the villagers vented their spleen, the NRA would come marching back in, kick the communists out, and reinstall the landlords who would then exact their revenge against the revenge taken out on them. Always a dish best served cold. Another problem that Jiang faced was that his best-laid plans didn't happen. Back in 1944, when it seemed to be common knowledge that Japan was ultimately going down in defeat, it was almost a given that in the end, it was going to come down to an invasion of China by the U.S. military forces. Jiang's strategy totally counted on this, and he had been privy to all kinds of American intel regarding this planned invasion and the probability that it might happen in November. 1945, Jiang felt secure that once his NRA teamed up with the U.S. military to finish off Japan, it would be very likely, knowing how the Americans thought, that he could totally count on this American military presence to help snuff out the Chinese communists. But Chiang Kai-shek was completely oblivious to the Manhattan Project going on in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And then, thanks to the atomic bombs, no need for any invasion by the U.S. Marines, and no need to send any more American troops. Zhang must have been devastated when he learned this. But he couldn't sit around and mourn his loss. With Japan defeated, he had to rush to the former puppet state of Manchukuo, the undisputed industrial center of China, and take it all back from the Japanese before Mao's team got there. The Japanese generals were all surrendering to whoever they encountered first, CCP, KMT, even the Soviet armies. The problem was, North China was where Mao had a head start. So he rushed in first to try and capture as much as he could from the Japanese and allow time for his organizers, activists, and cadres to fan out across Liaoning, Chilin, and Heilongjiang to win the hearts and minds of the inhabitants there to the cause of the CCP. But wait! Jiang Kai-shek ran to his big strong buddy Uncle Sam and cried for help. And in go the Marines, 53,000 of them in all, into North China where they held Beijing and Tianjin for the nationalists and also kept the Soviets out. And to counter Mao's advances, over 100,000 of Jiang's most highly trained NRA troops were transported en masse with the help of Dakota Air Transport planes from the U.S. 10th Air Force, north to Manchuria so they could accept the surrender of as many Japanese as possible and grab whatever weapons and equipment they could before Mao got his hands on it. With this action, not that Mao Zedong needed any additional proof by this time, the Americans showed everyone who they were lined up with. They backed the KMT and Nationalist China against the Chaikoms. This wasn't just a few thousand scattered Japanese soldiers surrendering up in Manchuria. This was a massive operation. There were over one and a quarter million Japanese troops still armed, waiting to surrender in China. Of these 1.25 million, 900,000 of them were in Manchuria. And this didn't include the 200,000 Chinese soldiers of the puppet Manchukuo state, who mostly ended up getting absorbed into the Red Army. And don't forget, besides the Japanese soldiers, you also had one and three quarter million Japanese civilians who had made themselves at home in China since the early days, going back to the 30s. Mao, as usual, had his troops take the countryside, which he knew was going to be easier to hold than the cities. And the nationalists, as usual, took all the cities. But they were very thinly spread out. Manchuria, the northeast of China, they call it Dongbei. It's a large place. You can draw a 1,000-kilometer Diagonal line that runs straight as an arrow from Harbin to Changchun to Shenyang to Dalian, the four biggest cities of Manchuria. Doesn't look too big on a map, but in real life, not the easiest place to control. That area is more than one and a half times the size of Texas. And anyone who has made the drive from San Antonio to El Paso can tell you that's a lot of space. Forty-five million people back then called Manchuria home. Now let's talk about our World War II allies, the Russians, for a second. Right after the war ends, there's hardly a gram of trust that exists between the U.S. and Stalin. If you remember from one of the John Service episodes, the Big Three signed the agreement at Yalta in which they decided China's fate. Mongolia was peeled away from the Republic of China and from then on would be an independent state. And if that wasn't traumatic enough, the Soviets got to have a say in the operation of the railroad system in Manchuria. And the same went for Port Arthur, too, near Dalian. Gee, thanks, Big Three. August 14, 1945, we have the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship. This won't be the last one. Russia agrees to only recognize the nationalists and to only deal with them. No CCP. And they further agreed they'd withdraw from Manchuria back across the Russian border within three months of Japan's surrender. So, with the Russians hanging around Manchuria still in full force, this curbed any major fighting between the two opposing sides. So Stalin was giving Mao's team plenty of time to infiltrate the cities, towns, and villages unmolested. Stalin at this point was no means a backer of the Chinese communists. He didn't have much trust for Mao, or for Mao's particular brand of communism. But that didn't stop him from toying with Mao and Jiang for whatever advantage he could gain in this cold war he was having with the Americans. Mao had been successful in taking one city, Changchun. This is the capital of Jilin province that borders North Korea today. It had also been the capital of the Manchukuo state during the war. The communists held Changchun as long as... They could until Jiang moved in to wipe them out. So Mao sent orders to the guy who would try and assassinate him 25 years later, good old Marshal Lin Biao, and tells him to try and take Harbin, the capital of Heilongjiang province. Lin, then the one in charge of the Communist Northeast Military District, with over a quarter million troops, successfully seized the city, and Harbin was in CCP hands by May 1946. And those CCP cadres, man, they were good. They did their usual organizing thing and in short order were in control of the city right down to the neighborhood level. The city was flooded with any and all propaganda designed to turn the locals against the nationalists, which wasn't hard, and into supporters of the CCP cause. And they drew them in, sometimes resorting to force and threats of violence, but That's another matter. Anyways, Jiang, not confident that he could hold Manchuria without the Russians, asked them to stay a little longer until May 1946. Then, when these Russian troops left in May, they notoriously walked out the back door with about $2 billion worth of heavy industrial equipment, whole factories, food, and a lot of gold. They stripped the place clean. And then, after six months of supporting the nationalists in favor of the communists, fearing Jiang's growing strength in Manchuria, Stalin decided to hand over massive amounts of captured Japanese equipment and weapons to the Red Army. And this made Lin Biao's troops the best equipped and best trained of all Mao's armies. Let's go back to August 1945. In the first big powwow after the war... U.S. Ambassador Patrick Hurley, remember him? He's still around. He flies up to Yan'an and twists Mao's arm and convinces him to come to Chongqing to attend this peace conference with Chiang Kai-shek. Mao was dead set against this for obvious reasons, but he allowed himself to be talked into it. So the future great helmsman with Patrick Hurley as a chaperone takes his first flight ever and flies to Chongqing. No one mentioned in the history books if on the way the paper bag was on his knee. By the way, Mao insisted Patrick Hurley fly with him from Yan'an to Chongqing because he was absolutely certain that if he flew alone, the plane would be shot down or exploded in midair. Although 18 years had passed since the Shanghai Massacre of 1927, no one could blame Mao for thinking this way. Well, what followed were six weeks of fruitless negotiations, but this period, August 28th to October 10th, ushered in a relative truce that held for the most part. It was a truce in as much as the open fighting simmered down and both sides quietly got all their ducks in a row for the final confrontation that Jiang and Mao both knew would inevitably come. But for the time being, second half of August, both sides pretended to be close friends, and there were a couple priceless historical photo ops with Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek after 20 years of bloody opposition, posing together, even toasting each other. At this juncture in history, Communist Party membership had grown 30 times since the Japanese invaded in 1937. The party stood 1.2 million members strong and the army had grown from 92,000 to 910,000 between the time Japan invaded and when they surrendered. Lin Biao, while truces were being discussed with the American team, was using this short period of relative calm to further strengthen and consolidate his positions in Harbin all the way up to the border with Russia. If you look on a map, this this is the most northerly point of China. And the immortal Chen Yi, Marshal He Long, were also heavily involved in this operation. All focus by the communists was centered on Manchuria. Mao had said, if they can take and hold Manchuria, this war was won. During this phase of negotiation, when Patrick Hurley was leading things, no one could argue that the two sides weren't getting along. The two bitter rivals, no matter the extent of their hatred for each other, put on their best faces in front of the Americans. Even though Jiang had the inside track, as far as American support went, Mao wasn't giving up. If he had to exhibit enthusiasm for democracy, national unity, and freedom, he did it. Ultimately, he was holding out for a miracle, as far as continued access to American supplies. Let's just say, in short, Mao went back to Yan'an on October 11th, leaving Zhou Enlai, as usual, to continue the negotiations. The communists were just stalling and using the relative lull in fighting to get themselves in position for when the talks inevitably broke down. These American KMT-CCP talks were another case of "komi mi fu qian, sweet talking, but a sword in their belly, old Chinese saying. Fighting continued up in the Northeast where the Red Army was strongest. Initially, the struggle up in Manchuria was a microcosm of how things were going to play out on a national level. After the Japanese surrender, the NRA, as I said, were transported by the Americans en masse to take over the place. They took over the cities, forsook the countryside, and although Jiang shouldn't be blamed personally for this, His people just moved in, and once they took over the power structure, they plundered the place. Say what you will about the Japanese puppet state of Manchukuo, but one thing was for sure. The trains ran on time, and the place kind of operated with that kind of efficiency that we equate with, you know, the Japanese way of doing things. Then the nationalists poured into Manchuria and ruined what many of the inhabitants might have thought was a relative good thing. The locals reacted in a fashion that would have been witnessed down in Dixieland after the Confederacy lost the Civil War in 1865. They didn't like these carpetbaggers moving in and taking over. There was no shortage of local insurgents there who never missed a chance to aid the Communists and trip up the Nationalists at every opportunity. These local insurgents didn't carry guns, but they had all kinds of methods to get in the way of Jiang's massive attempts to recover Manchuria and kick the chai comms out. So here we can see, in Jiang's failed attempt to recover the three northeast provinces of Manchuria, how the rest of the struggle was most likely going to play itself out. These poor inhabitants up in Manchuria, since the fall of the Qing dynasty, they had first come under the thumb of the warlord, Zhang Zuolin, then his son, Zhang Xueliang, the young marshal, then came a very unpleasant Japanese occupation for 15 years. And now, in 1945, in rushes the nationalists with all their vicious, exploitative, carpetbagger ways. So, Harbin, that great city founded by Russians in 1898 during the building of the Chinese Eastern Railway, became Mao's first great success story of the Civil War. This became the first city to be taken and held. By the communists. And after Lin's army took and held Harbin, they used this base to try and vastly improve their strategy as well as the organization of the army. It was during this phase that you could see the Red Army morphing from a guerrilla-based force to a more conventional fighting force. Peace talks continued through the rest of 1945, but as I said, no one was giving an inch and Patrick Hurley and his deal team got increasingly frustrated to the point where he just threw in the towel and said he was giving up. So Hurley resigned as ambassador and left in November 1945. He wrote this scathing resignation letter to Truman in which he blamed everything on John's service and his ilk, who undermined Jiang, aided and abetted the communists, and he threw in a few other incendiary bombs at anyone who didn't see eye-to-eye with him, And from there, Patrick Hurley exits stage left and in walks one of the greatest, most respected and admired Americans of his day, General George C. Marshall, he of the historic Marshall Plan. So he walked into this nest of vipers in December 1945, thinking he might be the one to sort it all out and bring peace to China and bring China into the American fold. Right away... In January of 1946, an agreement is reached, and let me put quotation marks around the word reached. This agreement called for a ceasefire in the North, and a political consultative council was set up that was comprised of KMT, CCP, and other interested parties in the struggle. This council went about making plans to reorganize the government and make nice. The spirit of cooperation seemed sincere and real to the American side finally, someone was able to get something done. Marshall was seen as a hero. No one had been this successful in bringing these two sides together like this. So, Marshall left Nanjing, where these talks were held this time, and went back to the U.S. to report into the head office and let Truman know it was almost mission accomplished. With the war ended, there was no need for a wartime capital, so everything was moved from Chongqing back to Nanjing. Except as soon as Marshall's plane took off, the whole agreement fell apart, and the two sides were immediately at each other's throats. Jiang went ahead and just did whatever he wanted to do. And to hell with the CCP if they thought he was going to share even a molecule of real power with them. In the summer of 1946, Jiang felt, despite Marshall leaning on him like crazy, it was now or never. His power and prestige were never greater. The communist troops were being beaten back and for the most part were on the run in Manchuria. Recovering Manchuria had been Chiang Kai-shek's first order of business. And ceasefire or no ceasefire, he wasn't going to give up on the Northeast so easy. All the political and military agreements made were all washed away. And the gains made by the Red Army in the urban areas were quickly lost. Mao and his generals pulled out all the stops to hold their positions in the north and walked away from all their hard-to-hold positions in the south and central part of China. Later immortals Li Xiannian, Nie Rongzhen, and Chen Yi all faced losses and were among those who had to flee to the north, away from the nationalist power centers. This period, when Jiang was openly defying Marshall, really put Mao's forces in hot water, With all the anti-communist rhetoric that had been received loud and clear, along with what happened to John's service and his whole genre of people, John Kai-Shek sort of knew he had a high degree of wiggle room as far as how far he could go in defying Marshall. He knew the Americans weren't going to abandon him in favor of the communists. That much he felt certain about. General Marshall came back and used his considerable powers of persuasion to get both sides to once again agree to a new ceasefire in June 1946. And if they didn't, he assured them they wouldn't get any American supplies. So, just as Jiang was about to plunge the knife into the communists in Manchuria, like the Lord did to Abraham, Marshall stays Jiang's hand. And once again, the Americans unwittingly gave the communists a breather. Stalin was watching everything quite closely. When he saw the NRA become too powerful, he loaded Mao's army up with whatever weapons and materiel that he could. And he sent in advisors and people to train them. But if Mao looked like he was getting too big, Stalin would then go help the Nationalists. It's hard to believe all the negatives that have been written about the Nationalist army. Could that army really have been that bad? I've heard the stories for as long as I've been seriously studying China. Were these accounts about the fighting abilities, the venality of the officers, their sheer corruption and utter incompetence? Was this really all true or part of the myths and lore that surrounds this most bitter of struggles? Every source I have read universally gives the NRA poor marks. One of the deans of modern Chinese history, John King Fairbank, in his work, The Great Chinese Revolution, even writes contemptuously of them. So along with the help of the Japanese invasion, the Americans, and Stalin all playing the great game in China, it could be said, Jiang lost the Civil War the old-fashioned way, outperformed on the battlefield. Aside from all the usual misery and hardships caused by marauding soldiers and being caught between the two opposing sides, there was also the whole economic aspect of the Civil War that was adding agony on top of misery with this whole hyperinflation thing. I'm quoting the wonderful sinologist and author Jonathan Fenby, who was quoting Michael Lynch, honorary senior lecturer at the University of Leicester, who put it best when he said, in 1940, 100 yen bought a pig, in 1943, a chicken. In 1945, a fish. In 1946, an egg. And in 1947, one-third of a box of matches. You get the picture? This didn't make Chiang Kai-shek look too good, and he truly lost a lot of luster in front of the moneyed class who he had always depended on. We'll touch more on this matter next episode. There's a Currency Reform Act in 1948, and some of the wealthier Chinese are going to get shafted in a big way. American aid was falling off the back of trucks everywhere and made its way right to the black market. Jonathan Fenby also writes that blood plasma, donated by the American Red Cross, could be had for $25 a pint in some shops in Shanghai. You know, I've read so many books... Books I bought on Amazon, books in my library, books available on the Google, and the stories are simply gut-wrenchingly sad. Some of them I can't bring myself to believe. Did such horrible acts really happen? I read these little vignettes, one after the other, and I don't know whether to believe that history is always written by the victors or if all these stories are... Not only true, but don't even tell the full extent of the horror and the depravity of some people. Let me tell you one person who was totally not a Jiang guy. Yes, the man who gave him the moniker, cash my check. Good old give him hell Harry Truman, our 33rd president. By 1947, he had had enough of Jiang. And when his elegant and charming wife, Song Mei Ling, came to the U.S. again to raise money for the nationalists, Truman gave her the cold shoulder... He did not share his predecessor's patience for the Generalissimo, nor for his wife. Truman was quoted as saying once, grafters and crooks in the Chinese government had stolen a billion dollars from U.S. loans. They're all thieves, every damn one of them. And let me just add that back then, in the mid to late 1940s, a billion dollars was actually a lot of money. I think there may have been, like, one billionaire in the whole world at that time. Don't ask me who he was. So getting back to George Marshall, he must have known how Captain Charles Elliot felt back in the bad old days before the Opium War. He was just being turned into a monkey. Marshall was being openly defied by Chiang, and despite all his best efforts and using the entire extent of his dignitas and political capital, they paid him lip service but no one actually listened to him. So, January 7th, 1947, George C. Marshall went home to the USA empty-handed, his mission a failure. Even he had considered the whole mission a waste of time, and the only reason he stayed as long as he did was out of a sense of personal duty to his commander-in-chief, Harry Truman. But that didn't tarnish his reputation too bad. He went back to the States, became Truman's Secretary of State, and in June of that year, he launched the European Recovery Plan, which went down in the history books as the Marshall Plan. And it's this great achievement, which brought out the best in America, that we mostly remember this great man. By the time Marshall left, the Nationalists held all the major cities and rail lines. They had two to three times the number of soldiers as the Red Army, they had vastly more firepower. Even with Stalin handing over as much as he did to the communists, the Red Army generals knew they were beat fighting out in the open, so they just opted out of the fighting. They couldn't beat the nationalists the way the deck was stacked in late 1946, early 1947, so they just laid low and resorted to what they did best, guerrilla tactics. During this period, the communists had lost control of 165 towns spread out over 67,000 square miles, an area about the size of the state of Washington, to give you an idea. But there was still one city they held. That was Harbin. And we'll see next episode how, after Marshall gives up and goes home, Jiang rushes in to snatch this city from the communists. But this time, things turn out a little differently. After a nice period of intense training for the Red Army troops and after the fortification of the city, the NRA failed in their attempt to take Harbin, and they are shocked to find this one-time guerrilla force had turned into a real lean-mean fighting machine. And in the winter of 1946-47, when armies traditionally dig in and wait for the freezing cold to pass, that's when the Red Army went on the offensive— and during this offensive, so many arms and ammunition were seized. Some leaders began to joke that Chiang Kai-shek was fast becoming their major arms supplier. By this time, Mao had turned his focus solely on the conduct of the war and left the political side of things to Liu Shaoqi and Ren Bi Shi. One more thing. On May 1, 1946, the Communist Army was rebranded as the Jun or the People's Liberation Army, or PLA for short. Leading this effort for Mao up in Manchuria is none other than Lin Biao. We remember him well from the Cultural Revolution series. He's been quite vilified since 1971 and quite a bit of negative. has gushed out about various idiosyncrasies and whatnot. But it was in this capacity, as the one in charge of Taking and holding Manchuria for the communists, that Lin Biao achieved his greatest success and made his most important contribution to the Chinese Revolution. Mao knew three things for certain the Zhongguo Lao bai Xing, Chinese people, were not on the side of Jiang Kai shek. And the NRA troop morale was off the charts low. And lastly, he knew what was going on with the economy and that this was causing its own devastation. So Mao, in early 1947, though far from victory still, must have felt a little smug in what he was seeing. To add to Jiang's woes, in 1946, a student movement began to form out of thin air that was clearly anti-civil war and pro-reconciliation with the communists. And plenty of these students are going to get the old bullet to the back of the head later on. We'll come back to the student movement again in the next episode. 3,000 years ago, the venerable Duke of Zhou, good old Zhou Gong, introduced the concept of the Mandate of Heaven. And clearly, the way Mao saw it, Chiang Kai-shek and his dynasty had clearly lost this mandate. And we're going to pick up next episode in early 1947 and watch as that Mandate slips through Chiang Kai-shek's hands and the fighting between the communists and the nationalists explodes all over China. There are going to be no more fruitless attempts at mediation. Now the Americans have been shunted aside and this epic battle at last shifts into high gear. So that's going to be it for now. So, until the next time we convene, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the edge of L.A. County here in Claremont, California. Even with that visible layer of brown smog. It's still clear blue skies here, and I wish you were all here to enjoy it with me. Take care, everyone, and I hope you'll join me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.